This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. After spending a few days in Memphis, Tennessee, amid this scandal there, the death of Tyree Nichols just this past week, you had his funeral in Memphis. I cried. I screamed at God, asking how could he let this happen? And then my cries turned to anger and a pain I never felt when those monsters murdered my baby brother. I love you and um, to save a spot for me, bro. We have to fight for justice. Yeah. We cannot continue to let these people brutalize our kids. Then you have to think twice for you beat Tyree Nichols. You think twice before you shoot at someone unarmed. You think twice before you chokehold Eric Garner. I know we can't bring Tyree back, but in this call to action, we established his legacy. And then you had the replaying of this video, the body cam video in the sky cop video, which means it's from a pole with a camera on top. It captured the images of Tyree Nichols being pummeled by those officers. Hit, kicked, punched, pepper sprayed, everything. Investigators are still trying to figure out what it was that sparked the confrontation in the first place. And frankly, in my experience, covering issues like this one, police accused of using excessive force, oftentimes the police reports, they don't match the video. And here's what else I know, that every time one of these things happens, you have people in Washington talking about reform, police reform. So what's going to happen now, post Tyree Nichols? Well, the Congressional Black Caucus, they went to the White House this past week, and we're talking to the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, 
In an exclusive interview, Congressman from Nevada, Stephen Horsford, who's the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus. Thanks for being with us. I'm very excited to join you. All right, let's let's talk about that meeting at the White House. What happened? Well, um, I'm pleased that the president and the vice president uh, made a priority to meet with members of the Congressional Black Caucus to discuss our priorities, our shared priority around public safety, uh, police reform and justice. Uh, to discuss ways that we can continue to build on the momentum from the president's executive order last May and to chart a path forward um, on additional action in Congress that really needs to happen in order to um, address the lives that have been lost uh, due to um, police brutality, specifically uh, as a result of the Tyree Nichols' death uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. All right. And so what was discussed? Was the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act dis- discussed? Well, first, what was discussed is, is a discussion around who Tyree Nichols was. That's something that both the president, the vice president who attended the funeral and who, you know, expressed condolences directly on behalf of the president, the White House, the American people. Um, I spoke to the family uh, over the last weekend. And, you know, what they asked us first and foremost, before we talk about legislation, is that we talk about who Tyree Nichols was, because he was a person, he was a human, uh, a father, a, 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 a son, someone who had a lot of purpose and potential and a full life ahead of him. He loved skateboarding and sunsets and photography. And, you know, on the way to visit his mother, after working a shift um, as a driver, he got pulled over. um, And what we still don't know, uh, the reason why, pulled out of his car, uh, tased and um, tear gassed, beaten, and while yelling for help and assistance and calling out for his mom, his mama, is what, as he expressed it, he ended up dying a few days later from this brutal beating that was now witnessed uh, for everyone to see. And so what we all should be able to agree on, regardless of party, regardless of ideology or what region of the country that you come from, is that no, that is, first of all, that Tyree Nichols should be alive today and that no one should have to fear fear for their life because of um, an incident, particularly a traffic-related incident. And while this may disproportionately affect black and brown communities, it does not only affect black and brown communities. And unless all of us are safe, none of us are safe. And that is the message that we took to the president. He heard our cry for additional action. He is going to use, you know, his position as president, both during the State of the Union and in other ways to make sure that um, we continue to put pressure on Congress to do its job and that we ultimately get action so that everyone can feel safe. 
You mentioned the executive order that the president signed um, back in May to, as it was described, to advance effective, accountable policing and strengthen public safety. Do you think that executive order was enough? Well, what I do believe is that it was what the president was able to do under his authority. Um, and and I do believe it was a major step forward. And it, caught, it, it, it is an executive order that took the principles around eliminating the chokehold, uh, addressing issues around no knock, um, making sure that we have additional training and accountability. But that is limited to federal law enforcement agencies. And so the limitation right now is we need Congress to act in order to have a federal law that can then apply to the more than 18,000 police departments across this country. Congressman Jim Jordan, he said in recent days that he doesn't know if any law could prevent what happened in Memphis. There are some people in law enforcement who would agree with him that this was a training issue. Why do you think more legislation will prevent something like this from happening? Well, uh, let me first speak to uh, the, the law enforcement p- professionals. We, we understand that we need law enforcement in order to keep our community safe. And there is a role that law enforcement plays every single day when men and women put on that uniform and put their life on the line and they deserve to go home to their family at the end of their shift. Um, it is irresponsible for the now chair of judiciary to suggest that there's no law that can improve the culture of policing or that he somehow does not agree that we should work to eliminate bad policing practices where they exist. What is the point of being an elected official and serving over judiciary, which which deals with uh, law enforcement and the criminal justice system, unless you were able to do something to make improvements in the lives of everyday people? So I, I, I just reject that notion. Um, this is more than training. Um, this is about the culture of policing. The incident in Memphis is not a singular incident. What happened to Tyree Nichols is not a singular incident. Sadly, somewhere in America, it happens all too frequently. And that is why the Congressional Black Caucus, working with other coalitions, the Hispanic Caucus, the Asian American Caucus, outside civil rights groups, uh, the families who have been directly affected by policing and public safety issues, all are calling for Congress to do its job. And we need Republicans on the other side of the aisle, like Senator Tim Scott and others, who have indicated a willingness to work with us on meaningful uh, reform. Could you give me an example, just one example of what could be written into legislation that would prevent what we saw on that video. Absolutely. So one of the most compelling uh, actions that Congress should take is to enact legislation uh, requiring a duty to inter- 
intervene, a duty to care. Uh, that is part of the responsibility of first responders, whether they are police officers or EMT, doctors, nurses, that is part of their profession. And that, and that should be codified in federal law. There were people who stood around and watched as uh, Tyree Nichols was beaten to death. And there should have been more um, of a of a belief, of a feeling to intervene on behalf of a human being who did not deserve to be beaten and ultimately die in the manner that he did. If you write that into the legislation, are you or would you call for criminal penalties for those who don't uh, show empathy or who don't intervene? Well, that's part of the work that Congress has to do. I'm not going to sit here and craft the legislation without the input of my colleagues and the experts in the profession who know best what those standards of conduct should be. But that that standard should be in law. And that is something that we will work with our colleagues, again, on both sides of the aisle in the Senate and the House to achieve so that the type of incident that we saw on video and the beating and now and death of Tyree Nichols, that we avoid that type of incident from happening to other uh, people in the future. Senator Tim Scott is the point person in these negotiations in the Senate for the GOP. Have you had any interaction with him since Memphis? Have, have you discussed with him the possibility of working together? on crafting this legislation? I have made contact with Senator Tim Scott as the chair of the Black Caucus to let him know that we are serious about finding common ground to move a meaningful reform package on public safety, police reform, and justice. And Senator Booker and Senator Warnock, who were participants in the meeting today, are involved in discussions with Senator Scott and others around ways that we can move uh, comprehensive legislation, and that's part of what we talked with the president today about and agreed on an approach to move forward. Are you optimistic that this time something will get done in Congress? There were a lot of people who thought, hey, after George Floyd, of course, things are going to change. To, to make these incidents less likely to happen. But even after George Floyd, very little changed in terms of legislation. Why do you think this time is different? This time is different because the moment is, is different. Now, George, there should have been action following George Floyd, and the people across the, the country took two the streets to peacefully protest for, for, for action. And to be clear, there has been action in local and state governments across the country. In my home state of Nevada, uh, during, the 29th, during the 2021 session, a number of reforms were passed and, and implemented. For example, the pattern of practices standards. Some of that has been enacted in local levels. Just even in Memphis, I commend the new chief 
who immediately took action to hold those officers and EMT officials accountable for the beating of Tyree Nichols. That's not something that would uh, likely have taken place prior. So there has been progress. I don't want to uh, indicate that there hasn't. But what hasn't happened is we haven't been able to get a federal law through both the House and the Senate. We voted on legislation in the House around police reform and, and public safety accountability. We need that same approach to get done in the Senate. It's, gonna, it's not easy. It's going to take Republicans and Democrats working together to solve a very complicated issue. But lives are depending on it. This is not, in it. This is not a black issue or a brown issue exclusively. This is not a Republican issue or a Democrat, uh, Democratic issue. This is an, a public safety issue that is hurting people's ability to feel safe in their neighborhoods, in their schools, at their local park. And that's why the Congressional Black Caucus will work tirelessly um, with anyone who agrees with us that bad policing should not exist anywhere in America and that all of us should be committed to improving the culture of, pol of policing as well as public safety for everyone. I, I don't want to spend too much time revisiting some past statements that you've made, but just, just looking uh, at some of the research, didn't you try or succeed in blocking legislation to increase funding for local police departments, allowing people to say that you were part of the progressive left that wanted to defund the police? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, uh, my record of supporting uh, funding for law, law enforcement, for my own local law enforcement agencies, as well as for law, uh, law enforcement across the country, um, is pretty clear. I, I voted for the American Rescue Plan, which provided funding to local and state governments uh, at a time that those into those agencies needed it in order to keep law enforcement um, working. I have voted for appropriations packages that have included funding for the COPS program and uh, uh, other programs that go directly to supporting um, law enforcement. And I believe in the need to properly fund law enforcement. And I also believe that law enforcement has asked for uh, additional resources like support for mental health, support to address the amount of uh, issues around domestic violence that law enforcement encounters, uh, to address the victim side of uh, assisting uh, individuals who are affected by crime in their community. And so this is a holistic approach. Um, rather than scare tactics that are used by some to try to demagogue the issue or divide Americans, I believe that we should be coming together to both support our law enforcement while also ensuring that bad policing doesn't exist anywhere in America and that everyone um, can be safe uh, in their community. Do you believe that there is systemic racism in police? What I know is we all need to focus on the issue of public safety. All of us, this should be a core value that all of us can agree on. We all should feel safe in our communities. 
whether you are an Asian American who has been targeted because of Asian hate, whether you are a Latino who has been targeted because of the uh, rhetoric around um, immigration status, or if you are a person um, who gets stopped driving your car and encounters law enforcement and doesn't feel safe that you will not come out of that unharmed. All of us should be able to work towards one common issue, and that is public safety for everyone. But do you believe that there is systemic racism in the system, in policing? I'm, I'm not going to sit here and uh, be pitted around issues that I know are nothing but traps to then be used to divert or distract me from my primary goal, which is to get comprehensive legislation that is meaningful, that is bipartisan, that will save lives, and that will make sure that we improve public safety. So I'm not going to entertain a question that does nothing but create divisiveness rather than working towards common ground and solutions. And, and I appreciate your answer, but, but it is, I think it is pertinent uh, because we're talking about an emotional issue here. Um, we're, we're talking about law enforcement in this country, and there are a lot of people in law enforcement who uh, look at past statements by politicians, and, and they wonder if the politicians are, are coming to the table with an open mind. And, and that's why I think past comments do matter. Are you concerned that any past statements that some of, some of the uh, supporters of police reform legislation have made in the past could haunt any negotiations going forward? What I'm most concerned about is our ability to save lives. Tyree Nichols should be alive today. Anyone who watched that video of him being removed from his car, hazed, tear gassed and beaten, if you have any human ability to feel for another person, you should believe that that should not result, resulted in his death, that, they, they, that, that there were other ways to address the issue, that we should have had de-escalation and there should have been a duty to intervene and other people should have come in so that Tyree Nichols would be alive today and the officers involved would not now have their entire career ru ruined because of their inability to de-escalate. So I am focused on solutions. The Congressional Black Caucus, as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, I'm, we are working hard to make sure we move this issue forward. Our discussion with the president was about how we work together um, to address public safety and police reform as well as justice. Policing is one element that it's not the only element. And I'll say this without equivocation. Law enforcement officials who put on the uniform and go into danger while other people run away deserve to go home at the end of their shift. They have families, too. They also deserve to have the respect of their profession not be undermined by people who are practicing bad policing. And that is why we need to both have accountability while also supporting law enforcement with the resources that they need to do their job to protect and serve our communities. Congressman Stephen Horsford, 
of Nevada, Democrat. Thanks for your time. Really enjoyed being on. Thank you. Chuck Wexler is with the Police Executive Research Forum. He is the executive director of PERF. And for those of you who don't know, it is an organization of law enforcement officials and others dedicated to improving the professionalism of policing. Chuck, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. All right. So based on what you've seen over the last couple of weeks happening in, in, in terms of what's happening in Memphis, the fallout for the police department, what do you think, where does policing in Memphis, in your view, go after you have an incident like this that is so high profile, uh, the video is so hard to watch, where does the Memphis Police Department go from here based on your experience uh, in cases like these? Well, you know, Memphis has been in a has been in a, this is a tough week for Memphis, but you know, it's interesting, Jeff, that in 1987, the Memphis police department had an incident that involved a, a person in crisis. And I believe he had some kind of a knife or a machete and the police wound up shooting him. And, you know, rather than it just being another shooting, they looked at the incident and they brought people together. And out of that came something fairly that had national implications. And they referred to it as the Memphis model. And it was um, the, uh, the uh, evolution of what would come to be called crisis intervention training. And many departments um, uh, copied that model, the Memphis model. And you hear departments talking about CIT training. So really, I say that because sometimes even out of a crisis become, comes an opportunity. Now, that was one incident, and that was a number of years back. This incident today is, has far greater uh, implications. It, it, it's, 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 it's so astonishing and, 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 and just terrible. And first of all, you know, for the loss of life of Mr. Nichols, number one. And number two, there's so many teaching moments there for Memphis and for police departments across the country. I mean, it, it, you know, people talk about police reform and so forth. And on some level, what happened that day in Memphis, Tennessee, was, you know, everything went wrong. And, and professional policing, even putting aside police reform, people will look at that from a professional standpoint and and just be you know stunned by how a group of officers in nine, in, in 2023 could act that way i mean professionally legally uh you know they're human their humanness it just it is everything against what professional policing should be what is it about policing that brings out that kind of response, that kind of anger. You know, Jeff, that's the part that none of us can understand. Not not to say that any use of force is, is, is understandable, but sometimes when you see something, if you see an active shooter or if you see someone feeding up 
you know, their husband or the wife and the police have to intervene and use force to, to stop the violence. But in this case, Mr. Nichols was not exercising any, any force. I mean, this was just, but the, the part that people don't understand is why were those officers so angry? Why were they, why were they fighting so hard at someone who was nonviolent? Why did they run after him? I mean, in some ways you had someone who might have committed a traffic offense, but you know, to, 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 to put pepper spray in his eyes and to uh, tase him when he's running away and then to beat him and to kick him. I mean, it's just, the, there was no explanation for that violence. Um, there, there was no way you could explain it. It, it, it it's hard. It, the, the, the one part of the story that is not, that does, does not come out is what happened at the very, very beginning of the stop. And that is not on video. Apparently that officer was in a uh, unmarked car and it didn't have a camera. But the other officers did have body-worn cameras, so I just didn't understand that. But it would have been, you know, it would have at least said something about how did this encounter get off to such a bad start? Even without that, you look at this encounter and you say, what did Mr. Nichols do that would justify any use of force? Any. There was no weapon. There was no threat. There was no risk. He was not argumentative. There was nothing that we have seen that would, that would, it was as though these officers continued to escalate the force, giving like 70 commands in 13 minutes and, and no sergeant there to supervise. You know, in the Rodney King situation, 30 years ago, a sergeant was there, Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, and he was wildly criticized because he didn't intervene. In this case, there was no sergeant which, you know, with uh, 10 officers, whoever were there, over 13 minutes. Uh, and yet the officers didn't intervene and the officers didn't render aid. So it, the whole incident is, is puzzling uh, on so many levels. Let's talk about your experience and Perf's experience working with police departments across the country. So when something like this happens, and you and I talked about, you know, I, uh, I discussed this, some of these issues in uh, a book that I released a couple of years, a few years ago, Black and Blue, this duty to intervene. Yes. Um, de-escalation tactics. The question is, when you think of that video, when what you saw in that video, how many opportunities were missed to de-escalate or peer intervention? You know, what's, what's interesting, Jeff, is usually when you talk about de-escalation, you're talking about trying to get whoever you're dealing with, whether it's someone in crisis or whether it's a suspect, you're trying to get them to reduce their level of anger or if they have a weapon, you're, you're trying to do whatever you can to slow things down, use time and distance. In this case, this is how this is different. In this case, the police officers are escalating their own uh, actions for no reason. It wasn't as though Mr. Nichols was resisting. He wasn't fighting. He was saying things like, come on, guys, I'm, I'm on the ground. Okay. All right, guys. I'm there was, he wasn't using 
any language. He wasn't his actions. He didn't have a bulge in his pocket. He didn't. He didn't hit. So so this is this is different, Jeff, than other cases where you have, you know, the police are called because uh, their their son is off his medication and he, and you open the door and he's holding a knife, and you're trying to talk to him and communicate to get him, you know, to you know to to come peacefully. What do you do when the police officers are escalating their force? Now, having said that, what should be done is someone should step in. It's, it, you know, the duty to intervene is all about someone stepping forward. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a sergeant, but any of them. They have this training called ABLE and so forth. I think what comes across in this video is the enormous peer pressure and culture uh, of, of a kind of, uh, of an action by a mob. That's what it looks like. Uh, you know, each one giving a different order, each one sometimes countervailing the other one's orders. But what do you do when the people who are doing the escalating are the cops? But what do you do? How does the Memphis Police Department prevent something like this from happening again? So, you know, much like I said when we began talking about 1987 and how Memphis used that tragedy as an opportunity to create a training not only for the Memphis police, but police departments across the country. You know, if I'm the chief in Memphis, I'm going to try to turn this horrible situation into opportunity. Say, what can we learn from this? And 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 you know, bring bring her command staff together, and say, you know, let's talk about this. What can we learn from this? Bring, bring their sergeants together and talk about all the things that, that went wrong here, what should have been done, to check on our policies. You know, this was a specialized unit who were wearing body-worn cameras. That's another aspect to this, Jeff, that's fascinating. You know, we wrote the guidelines for the Justice Department of body-worn cameras. And, you know, when we first went about developing these guidelines, you know, the police weren't crazy about body-worn cameras. Uh, over time, they came to appreciate them. The good cops like body-worn cameras because, you know, they document what they're doing. In this case, uh, you know, he had a specialized unit that was wearing body-worn cameras. When I first heard about this incident and they hadn't released a video, I assumed they were plainclothes officers who didn't have body-worn camera videos. I assumed it was some other cameras. Turns out they were in uniform and they were wearing body-worn cameras. And you sort of said to yourself, wait, no, these officers are wearing body-worn cameras in their, and, and this is the behavior. I think they actually forgot that they were wearing the cameras. But I think one of the teaching moments from this is if you have a specialized unit like this, uh, one of the responsibilities, if they have body-worn camera videos, is to review those videos. And so if I'm you know, a police chief in some other city and I have you know, this one of these kind of units that has sort of uh, developed... Uh, uh, in the last two years in response to increase in violent crime, principally homicides and shootings, I'm going to take a look at how that unit is supervised, what body-worn cameras say about how they're approaching citizens, all of that. So back to your question about lessons from Memphis. You know, you, you, take, you take this situation and you say, what, what can I learn from it? What can we do that that Memphis, you know, can regain its reputation. What, what can we do? What are our, how are our policies? How are our training? If 
you have a policy like Memphis has, duty to intervene and duty to render aid, what does that mean? How do you do that? How do you overcome that peer pressure of intervening? You know, John Timoney, uh, after the Rodney King case, uh, he was in the NYPD, and they discussed, you know, duty to intervene because they tried to figure out what, why Sergeant Stacy Coon uh, did nothing. And so one of the policies NYPD developed was the duty to intervene. And the big question was, if you had a situation like that and you did want them to intervene, it would make a difference whether you were, be, you were asking them to write a report or you, you just wanted them to intervene that night and stop it. Because by having them write a report, you were in fact putting that officer in the difficult position of, of bringing uh, you know, charges against other officers. And so that might make them reluctant to do that. So that they compromised and they decided the best was, let's just have them stop whatever they're doing and not expect them to uh, report it. And I think, you know, that's the human element here. As you look at that situation, you say, you have a policy on duty to intervene. What would it take, you know, uh, for an officer to step up and get in there? You know, this goes back to, you know, situations I'm sure you're familiar with, with the My Line Massacre, and, and when you had a, a lieutenant who, you know, how did you, how do you stop that? It's not an, uh, it's not an uncommon problem when someone is committing, you know, violence like this. But what do you do when an entire group of officers is doing this? How do you train for that? How do you get an officer to step up? It render aid too. You know, these firefighters were, you know, fired the other day for not taking action. But, you know, how do you teach officers to render aid? Police officers have this very difficult position where we expect them to pivot. Usually it's in, you know, some kind of situation where you just had to shoot, you know, uh, whether it's a bank robber or an active shooter or something. And the police are supposed to pivot on that and then try to save their lives. It's a very um, unusual job that would have you one minute taking their lives, next minute saving it. But duty to render aid, um, you know, it comes, a, a lot of people will, will talk about the Samara Rice case in Cleveland when the officer wound up shooting uh, a young child and then the police stood around and didn't do anything, compounding uh, the mistake. Those are the kind of tough challenges that should come out of this. How do we, how do we get officers to step up? How do we make Memphis, you know, the place where, you know, out of this, uh, terrible crime and tragedy uh, came some some ways that you know other we can learn from when you see incidents like this happening in police departments given your experience does it suggest to you that there is a, a cultural problem within that department you know I think culture, is an issue in policing across the country. You know, I, I, I've, I've, I've had the experience of working in a lot of different departments. There's not one police culture. The Los Angeles Police Department has a culture. Kansas City has one. Washington, D.C. has one. And so changing, changing culture is difficult. And then within a department, within the Memphis Police Department, I suspect this Scorpion unit, they had a culture within the department. So you could have a patrol culture, detective culture, and then you have this specialized unit. You know, and when you have that, um, that 
you know, that can be very, that can be very dangerous. I mean, the, there's, there's units around the country in Baltimore, the gun unit in, in Los Angeles, you know, you, you had, you know, the Ramparts issue in, in New York, you had Amado Diallo. And, and these are these specialized units that really, you know, their intentions are good, you know, to deal with violent crime, but their methods and, you know, stopping every car that moves and, you know, pretext stops, all of those things, um, you know, it, to be effective, it has to be well managed. And, and you know, so if I'm at a police chief in another city, I'm, and I have a specialized unit, I'm looking at body-worn camera video. But the culture issue is a hard one. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing coming out of uh, Memphis, we saw it in Minneapolis to some degree, was a, um, a, a deviation from the written report to the video. And, uh, and that's, that's part of, you know, what happens in some departments is, you know, there's a tendency uh, to write in such a way that isn't going to be, you know, get anyone in trouble. And, you know, but I think what Body One Video has done is it's, it's really said, look, this is, this is, it is, is, it is exactly what it is. When we wrote guidelines for the Justice Department of Body One video, we said, in fact, that video might as well be a police report. And, and therefore, you know, people should have access to it. Uh, I think this is what made them charge these officers, fire them, and then ultimately charge them so quickly is, you know, when you had written reports, uh, you know, it, it could take days, weeks, and months to sort of sort it out. When you have body one video, uh, and you had this from a number of different angles, uh, including from that the last one, the street angle, uh, you know, the, the video sort of, you know, gives you at least a pretty good idea of, you know, what, what happened. It, it's not a complete report, but it certainly is better than a written report. And I think a, a lot of people across the country, <clears throat> police officers included, um, at least the ones who, who choose to, to go by the book, which I tell most people, I think that's the majority of police officers across the country. You can, you know, depending on who you are, you might uh, dispute that. But you know, I know a lot of good police officers there out there doing good work. That said, in your opinion, has there been enough reform since George Floyd's death? You know, I, I, um, it's hard to measure it. I don't know, you know, I mean, I think departments like Memphis and others, they adopted, you know, some, some low-hanging fruit, I would say. They put duty to intervene and duty to render aid in their policies. They began equipping their officers with body-worn cameras, uh, a number of departments, I just came back from San Diego where we had a conference on ICAT integrating communication assessment and tactics. A number of departments like Phoenix and Louisville and Chicago are adopting it as a way to deal with non-firearm situations to reduce use of force. So we're seeing that. So we're, you know, I think the sad part of this, Jeff, to be really honest with you, is the George Floyd murder was a turning point in policing. And now, you know, uh, bringing us back, uh, people will, will look at the Memphis situation, will look at Mr. Nichols' 
murder and, and, and say nothing has changed. And I, I think that's unfair to, you know, with 18,000 police departments, you're not, you're not going to have uh, you, 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 no standards, no training, no standards, no national accountability. You know, it's not like the UK where you have 43 different constabularies or Germany, one national police. So you can't, you can't turn on a dime with American policing. It's an incremental process. It's very haphazard. Uh, we saw that the defund movement really fizzled in the wake of violent crime. Uh, but we just came out with a report, and, and you were very generous in your remarks uh, uh, on Face the Nation about our report on training. And that we basically said that training is antiquated. Uh, it is has not kept up with today's challenges. It, it is done on the cheap. We train people for four to six months here compared to, you know, Germany and France a year to two and a half years. Uh, you know, it, it's adult learning. It's scenario based. It's on a critical decision model. So, you know, one of the concepts you had going on in Memphis is, a, is an outdated concept of this notion of use of force continuum. So if Mr. Nichols didn't respond to, you know, pepper spray, they tried a uh, taser and tased him as he's running away, which is, uh, you know, against what we, you know, would recommend. And if that didn't work, you know, we're going to try a baton. If that didn't work, we're going to kick him. That's all use of force continuum. What we would say today in the training on ICAT and so forth is, well, wait a minute, what do you have here? What What is we, this whole notion of proportionality, meaning, you know, what, what has he done? It's a, it's a traffic violation. We have his car. He's running away. We know who he is. So, you know, New York has 100,000 warrants. So if, if they had 100,001, Tennessee has, you know, what we know where he lives. He's 100 yards away from his, his family's home. He runs home. And the next day we knock on the door and say, hey, you've got a traffic violation or whatever it is. You know, if you look at this from a proportionality standpoint, that's the new way of thinking. You would say, what was, what would, what these officers doing? What was the danger? What was the risk? What was the sense of immediacy to get this man under control? You have his car. If that was the issue, then, you know, tow his car and let him go home and next day, you know, get a summons or whatever. I'm not even sure if this was a felony. I'm not even aware of what exactly he did. Nobody can really explain that. So, you know, your answer about has enough happened since um, the George Floyd murder, I, I would say in some places, yes, and some places, no. But um, changing American policing uh, is a Herculean effort uh, because it's so decentralized. And, and, you know, I was thinking about this, and, and what's troubling about all of this from our standpoint organizationally is there's about six or seven hundred thousand cops in the united states and um you know every day let's say half of that works and if each of one of them stops say five to eight people so that's a million and a half different you know uh stops or occasions to interact and if there are 30 percent are wearing body cameras the probability of having some kind of incident not necessarily one as, as horrific as this is pretty high. And how are we going to change that? How how is how do you change American policing that's so decentralized? Do you think about regional academies? 
uh, do you think about, you know, some way to bring standards and training? In? And here's the other thing. Here's the really interesting takeaway. We are having a recruiting, hiring, and retention crisis in this country right now with cops. Military and teachers, too, but cops in particular. Nobody wants to be a cop. After the Tyree Nichols murder, this is only going to make it more difficult and, quite honestly, may make it more difficult to hire African Americans who may simply look at this as, you know, this is not the job for me, and and that would be that would be very bad. Uh, so that that's that is that's a crisis that already was occurring in the post George Floyd period that will only be compounded by the the Nichols death. Chuck Wexler. Thanks for your time. Great to talk to you. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.